Hello and welcome to the Wild Spirit Podcast. I am your host, Nicole Telkish, bringing you interesting and hopeful stories and experiences that bring you closer to your own inner wild. This is episode four, Echoes and Awakenings, with my guest, Will Morris. This is part of a special mini-series that I'm doing covering my holistic community's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And there are going to be several related to this, so please do check back often for new ones. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing, you can support me at my Patreon account, Wild Spirit Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Will Morris. He is an educator and practitioner and has spent over 40 years practicing and teaching. Uh, He participated in the development of three doctoral programs in acupuncture and oriental medicine. He also developed two institutional review boards for oversight of research in acupuncture and oriental medicine. As president, he led AOMA Graduate School of Integrative Medicine to a level four doctoral degree granting institution within the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. He's also versed in astrological traditions of early Greek, medieval, Renaissance, and Vedic astrology, and he uses contemporary astrological methods such as cosmobiology and vibrational astrology as a centerpiece of his work. He's both both a writer and a musician. His books include Cycles in Medical Astrology, Transformation Treating Trauma with Acupuncture and Herbs, Li Shijian, Pulse Studies as an Illustrated Guide, TCMK Studies, Dermatology and Reiki Hands That Heal. He also has several musical projects, and he recently retired from his role as the president of AOMA Graduate School of Integrative Medicine and now lives at the Kootenai Sound Healing Center in Riondal, British Columbia, Canada. How do you feel about the latest news on COVID-19 and this pandemic? What is your response right now? And do you have anything to say about it? Well, first of all, there's a lot of different news going on. Pandemics are not something new. The transition from the classical era into middle ages was precipitated by a pandemic that led to the topple of Constantinople in part. Long prior to that, the the fall of Athens took place under the influence of a pandemic. Then also the movement from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance took place under the influence of the bubonic plague. Now, the pandemics are a natural occurrence in life. The, The problem with this postmodern period is that they're sometimes mixed in with uh, biological warfare materials. People tended to write it off as a flu-like problem in the beginning, comparing it to the number of deaths, say, with the flu. The thing is, is we don't know because we've not really been able to see the arc. And the real problem with the U.S., of course, is the fact that the laboratory testing is still not in play. So people who are really sick, clearly infected with the virus, the coronavirus, are not getting tested. 
So the numbers are not right. So we're probably going to see an explosion in numbers as the test units get into play. The U.S. has a problem with mismanagement at the start, and partially due to fund reduction at the CDC. We're facing something that is a normal experience for humanity. And the transition from one period to another, the transition from the medieval period, Middle Ages, to the Renaissance was marked by the bubonic plague. There was a plague that was tied in with Constantinople and the transition uh, from the uh, classical period into the Middle Ages was earmarked by plague. And then, of course, the fall of Athens also earmarked by a plague. Now, what's odd is that I can find very little discussion of the plague of Athens relative to herbal materials. We'll find that Hippocrates writes extensively on the matter, addresses it in terms of description surrounding factors such as season, terrain, and the disease patterns, and offers up specific cases without discussing what the treatments were. I find it particularly odd. Then once we get to the bubonic plague, of course, then we start to see medicinal substances coming into play on the record. Certainly, I know of people who were having the exact symptom profile of this SARS-CoV-2, which is the new name for it. It's a SARS derivative virus. The SARS derivative virus, the symptom picture of an extremely dry upper respiratory tract has been in play. And of course, you know, seasonal colds and flus tend to be a little bit more sloppy and wet. Although the differential diagnosis for herbalists, of course, is along the lines of how much fever is there? How hot are they? How dry or moist are they? These are the most fundamental differentials to take into consideration. Let's start with the general public. Do you have any recommendations? We all know to stay home now. We all know to avoid contact. But as far as preventative therapies for people who want to stay well. Do you have any recommendations? I do, actually. Let's start with the easy stuff to get that's still available. Vitamin C, quercetin, vitamin D, zinc. That's a frontline vitamin profile. And I have followed cases of individuals reporting out on their use of vitamin C alone to manage their infection. And those cases have gone well. Plus, there's a good degree of research on it. And not only that, but the American College of Orthomolecular Medicine has been making that recommendation since uh, or it first hit the news back in January. One of the things that I've been thinking about is that we don't need everyone running to the store to buy certain herbs to make certain recipes if they don't really understand herbs. So I'm going to have some resources for some basics for people. But as far as right. herbs for herbalists, was there anything that you would herbs in general whether it's for the public or for the herbalist okay my first line recommendation is going to be along the lines of immune modulating mushrooms which could include uh, reishi mushrooms and chaga mushrooms and so forth also astragalus without question it's a core part of a, a formula that has been used from a millennium called jade screen powder furthermore it extends the telomeres on the chromosomes so there's a, a strengthening of the immune system that takes place with the stragglers and these other mushrooms 
And that's that's the first line. And then, of course, what goes along with that is metals can be used, and that's fantastic. So there's a, a host of the class of agents which are called immune modulators that, that can be used and should be used, and they should be used constantly two or three times a day prior to infection. Now, once infection takes place, it becomes more questionable. There are disciplines that literally will use astragalus through into an infection, but once the infection starts, then it becomes a little bit different conversation. And the generally speaking, the immune tonifying agents such as that, and I'm not talking here about echinacea, incorrectly classified as an immune tonifying agent. If we look at how the eclectic physicians use echinacea, they're using it for the purpose of clearing heat, what's called clear heat toxins. So now we're getting into the herbalist phase of it, of course. In an instance of clearing heat toxins, that looks like a snake bite. It looks like insect bites, allergic reactions, toxic reactions to insect bites or stings. These are all, so for instance, a wasp sting, you know, just grab some charcoal and echinacea or baking soda and put it on and, and go from there. What are the features of toxic heat is, is the next question that has to be answered here. And so that's a particular class of agents that will include medicinals such as baptisia and so forth, indigo. Those agents all clear heat toxins, as does actually honeysuckle. Now, honeysuckle, clear heat toxin agent that can be used readily by the public and can be harvested, of course, at home growing in many places is also forsythia. These are two clear heat toxin agents that are lighter, less intense than, say, indigo and baptisia. The use of echinacea as a preventative for colds is actually somewhat in the wrong pocket. What we want as preventative is those agents that are in the class of what are called qi supplementing agents in Chinese medicine, back to demodulating mushrooms, astragalus, uh, that's that's pretty much that wheelhouse. Now I'm going to look at, and let, it's okay if we just stay on the track for herbalists for now. Yeah. So I'm going to look at there's stages of development. You have surface level symptoms, and that means essentially upper body and outer body. So headache, body ache, fever. These are considered to be surface level. So for those, we want to be using what are called diaphoretics, uh, those agents which operate as peripheral vasodilators and can enhance sweat. So that's going to include things like kuzu or arrowroot. It could include mulberry leaves. It could include ephedra. There's a, a, all these agents open the surface, and they're designed for the initial stage. Well, they're designed uh, as they're in some kind of intentionality. They get used for the in, the initial stage of body ache, headache, congestion in the upper part of the body, mild febrile states. These are the periods of time for that. Now, the second stage is when um, the, the, the virus has been swallowed sufficiently to begin to affect the interior. Now we begin to see a cough. We begin to see reduction of appetite. Often, there can be temperature dysregulation. Sometimes they feel hot, sometimes they feel cold, and that's because the waning um, and waxing of the immune system in relationship to die-off of the microbes, there's this oscillating of temperature, which is not dissimilar from the oscillating of temperature they're experiencing in the world, whereas we don't have actually global warming, but we have global 
temperature dysregulation. And so sometimes people use that temperature dysregulation as an argument against the fact that we are in dire straits relative to our environment. Well, the external environment is not terribly different from our internal environment. And these uh, epidemic diseases, as Hippocrates now analyzed it, were discerned by the directionality of, of the pathogen in terms of which directions the winds came from during the onset of the epidemic. Uh, now, if you're into a, a bioweapon as the source of an epidemic, uh, it becomes a little more complicated. It's different when it's, than when it's t- taking place from the environment. The, this stage model is an accurate representation and really useful for guiding one's concepts in the course of treatment. Now, as, as it goes to the, what I call the organ level, then uh, the digestive system can be impacted. So again, a reduction of appetite. If it goes further, the gut tract can either go one of two directions. It can go into what's called a hypoosmotic diarrhea type of form, where it's just watery diarrhea, not much odor. This is considered to be cold. More dense fluids, yellow colorings of fluids, more odor is closer to the toxic heat type of pattern. So let's say it's a watery diarrhea, no odor, it's cold. The use of ginger, the use of water-transforming mushrooms becomes a consideration. Uh, Of course, protecting the electrolytes. Uh, The the biggest risk at this stage in terms of mortality is going to be uh, electrolytic. And if it it flips electrolytically, then go deeper into the nervous system, circulatory system, bigger problems. So uh, protecting electrolyte levels when this is taking place is a critical feature as well as warming the gut tract of which ginger is a a premium agent for warming the gut tract. Uh, And that will be a dried ginger is preferred to the raw, fresh ginger, which will cause more diaphoresis and sweat. So the fresh ginger is going to become important if uh, the pathogen is gone towards the lungs, right? Because if you use a diaphoretic such as ginger, which is fresh and can make sweat, um, it takes a little bit of pressure off of the lungs, but it also opens the capillary vents in and around the lungs. Uh, operating as a vasodilator. Let's stay on course with the organs. As it goes down into the digestive tract, it can also cause uh, constipation, in which case we're now, uh, the, the disease is at the interior, opening the surface is no longer relevant. Purging becomes relevant if it's constipation with high fever, dryness, mild states of delirium, and so forth. The rhubarb and its affiliated agents uh, that are purgative and they'll pull fluids into the digestive tract. Ayurvedic medicine, they'll, of course, use Epsom salt or Mirabilite, a cause of purgation. So this is oftentimes combined with the rhubarb and then citrus and other carminative agents might be added to prevent cramping from that particular treatment. And then it can also affect at the level of the liver and gallbladder, in which case, huge fan of homeopathic glycopodium at that level and scutellaria becomes important here. Now, if that diarrhea is uh, yellow and there's a very strong odor, then we're gonna do a scutellaria kind of combination. And here we're talking a bicyl scoot. We're not talking about skullcap uh, uh, as a nervine, but rather as an agent which um, harmonizes the liver gallbladder tract in the advent of an infectious disease condition. Now we've, we've kind of played it through the next stage. So we've got Described three stages. One is prevention, 
using the, the immune tonifying agents. Two is opening the surface so that the pathogens can be released, if you will, through sweating. If the person's chilled, then um, automatically I'm going to go to a ginger bath. You drink a cup of ginger, cook up a pound of ginger in a gallon of water, place it into the tub and uh, sweat and uh, drink that and uh, sweat it out. But once it goes to the organs, it's too late for that. So that's not a proper course of action, sweating for that, or purging unless there's constipation. Tonify to prevent. Open the surface, if you will, or release the surface or relax the muscle structures and the stride of the muscles and relax the, or open the peripheral vasculature uh, through the use of diaphoretics. Then we're talking about specifics for each of these organs. Those specifics to the organs are dependent upon temperature. So when the large intestine is cold and watery, we're using uh, dried ginger. When, when it's compacted and dry and hot, we're using rhubarb. At the level of the lungs, we look at, in particular this epidemic, the lungs tend to be very dry at the top of the lung, but down in the depth of the lung, there tends to be some phlegm congestion. The use of agents that moisten uh, are appropriate for the upper. So he, here we do what's called a type of harmonizing, where we're going to use uh, some phlegm dissolving agents for the lower portion of the lung, and we'll use open uh, or rather moistening agents demulsants uh, for the upper portion of the lung to, to soothe the lung. I do have one question that I think the audience may wonder. Some people may ask how you're coming up with this strategy since it's been said no one has ever seen this virus before. So just for you know, the audience's sake, how are you making these decisions? Well, that's the problem of contemporary medical practices, which hang their hat on the identification of a, a single causal agent. But I guess we should talk a little bit about my background. I'm a, I've been practicing herbal medicine for 40 years with more than 40,000 patient visits. During that time, since the 90s, actually, so it's been 30 years, I've been teaching infectious disease models. Now, this is based on, of course, Chinese medicine. And Chinese medicine has uh, two, two, actually three infectious disease models, which I also, I still currently teach at the doctoral level. If, if we're able to operate a model for care, then the symptom patterns uh, will direct us. Uh, and they actually become far more reliable. You can use an agent which has been through uh, reductive methods identified as a, a specific for a virus. That can be done, and that's what people are waiting for. Uh, this is wrong thinking and herbalism in my estimation. My teacher in the very beginning taught us to use that information, but you still have to treat the underlying terrain. It's the terrain that made the person vulnerable in the first place. And it's the terrain which governs the bio-individual responses to an infection. So it is the terrain that must be addressed in part. And so the models that I'm discussing and sharing here has to do with the response of the terrain to the infection. I understand the problem. I just disagree with the worldview in part. I am all for using a specific based on really grounded research. And the problem with that is it has to do with logic. 
and, and that is the logic of large population influences of a particular agent. For a particular agent to influence a large population means there's going to be some cost on a biological level. And that cost is uh, balanced if you manage to combine it. If, if we can manage to combine it with those agents which are protecting the underlying terrain and balancing the other underlying terrain in terms of hot, cold, moist, dry. The West threw out the baby with the bathwater following the scientific revolution and, and the consequent enlightenment when they determined, well, if we can't use a thermometer to, to tell if the herb is hot or cold, then uh, it's not. So you mm -hmm. said this mono vector of logic, which is actually detrimental to the overall capacity of care. So yes, absolutely. If we find an agent which is specific uh, to this coronavirus, I'm probably going to include it in the formula. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to worry about whether that agent fits the underlying humoral pattern of pop, cold, moist, dry. Mm -hmm. because I'll use the background formula to make that adjustment. I was just wondering, when you're thinking about foods to address this or whether people should fast or things like that, if somebody, let's just say somebody thinks they are sick, they've been told to self-isolate and just see how the symptoms go, do you have a strategy for somebody who's going through the symptoms as far as food um, emotional support, spiritual support, any sort of words that you would have for people going through it? Rest is the number one thing. Eating to, to comfort is okay. There are foods that are certainly to be avoided, such as sugar. If there's a lot of phlegm production, of course, dairy should be avoided. Fats should be avoided. But here's the thing, this particular virus tends to make a very dry upper lung and a phlegm congested lower lung. So we're, we need to get some phlegm dissolving herbs in there. And I'm going to look at the tongue because, the, you know, I don't know if you've seen some pictures of folks that are highly developed into the coronavirus infection, but, but microbiota of the intestinal tract are clearly in disarray because you'll see a yellow thick tongue coat. And of course, this is going to cause us to want to be using maybe some berberous types of uh, agents, those agents which drain damp heat, if you will. So all, all of the berberines, but Oregon grape or barberry are, are fantastic choices. But by the time we see that, you see, we have to locate where the problem is. This is stage two. This is not the surface. We're treating down at the organ level here. Uh, let's back this up a little bit. The original system in China for addressing epidemics was a six-stage model. And then around the 1700s, that system started failing. There was a period of rapid deforestation in China, and there were epidemics again. And so they developed what was called a four-stage model. So what I'm doing is essentially taking this 1700s four-stage model for handling epidemics, which has, both of these models, by the way, are part of core curriculum in mainstream medical universities, uh, the TCM universities of China now. They're also part of core curriculum for TCM universities here in the U.S. and abroad, uh, but not necessarily because if the person was only study acupuncture, 
it may or may not be. And usually it's a very cursory level of course material. I've spent 30 years focused on this particular area of study, finding experts, spending time with them, and applying it in my own clinic and teaching it. So these, these models are not dependent on a, a microbe which can be identified and labeled. In particular, the earlier model from the Han Dynasty about 2000, two millennia ago, is very focused on the functional response of the person to whatever invasion has taken place. And by adjusting the underlying functional response, then the body's in a better position to overcome it. Whereas the formulary that evolved during the 1700s, it has more of the particulars, which you might call specifics for antimicrobialism. And it's from that class of herbs that most of the contemporary research on specific antimicrobial activity has been performed. Back to the stages. Now, once it goes past the organ level, by the way, these stages are not necessarily sequential. They often are. It's usually on the surface. It has to go through the surface to get in. Has to go through the mouth or the nose or the skin or through some reproductive organs to get into the system. And then from there, it can go instantly towards the blood, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what we see with Ebola virus, right? The person starts uh, to bleed out. Well, the Chinese have a formulary for that. It's going to include agents such as uh, red peony and tree peony and raw romania. And I'll leave out agents which are not morally correct and not legal in the marketplace and should not be used. Mm -hmm. Then we have the affectation of the nervous systems. So if you see the person starting to go into delirium and so forth, four stages are, I make it five. Prevention is the fifth one. The surface, then the organs, then the blood, where there can be petechiae bleeding out, can be blood in sputum, blowing the nose, there can be blood, be blood in the urine, blood in the stool, all of those places where blood take place, uh, we have to use those agents which clear blood heat and stop bleeding. The basic goal is to stop the bleeding. Or it goes to the nervous system where there can be delirium or, or even just dizziness and a lack of clarity, muzzy-headedness can be included in, in that. To reiterate, you're saying the five stages are preventative, surface, organs, blood, and nervous system? That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I'm just taking the generalized concepts of stages of progression for epidemic disease and making it plain English and developing concepts around treatment in, in plain English. And actually, I'll be teaching a free online program on that. Oh, good. Yeah. You're going to be teaching an yeah. online program on epidemics or on what? Herbal medicine for epidemics. Oh, great. And can you talk about that, when that's going to be and how people get more information? Yeah. I'm going to start it <laughs> at 12 p.m. Pacific time starting Thursday the 26th. People can access me through my uh, Facebook page or they can also access me through uh, the website kshc.com for uh, Kootenai Sound Healing Center. Mm -hmm. Kootenai Sound Healing Center. 
those are places to find me, or you can just Google my name and pretty much come up with ways to find me. Uh, but that'll be five days. It'll be an hour and a half each day, Thursday, the 26th, starting Thursday, Friday, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the following week. Great. Um, we'll be dealing with each of these stages that I just discussed in greater detail with respect to what can be done. But I want to back up to the preventative stage because vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, there's some research coming out on quercetin and these types of coronaviruses is promising. These, these things are extremely helpful as is astragalus and the immune modulating mushrooms. Everyone should be taking those. And of course, most certainly by the time it gets to the second stage, you've got to stop that kind of stuff. Once it goes down into the organs, down into the lung, into the intestines, into the digestive tract. And some of these symptoms that I'm describing are uh, present in, but not necessarily published for this uh, coronavirus. Okay. Are there any studies coming out of China that you found particularly interesting and useful right now for this? I mean, anything new and interesting that people can look at or that you looked at and, and got inspired by? Well, here's the thing. Um, what's going on right now in China is the, the most senior docs on the front lines, they're reporting, and these models that I described are the ones that they're using, and they're having good results. They're saving lives with it. I really got turned out. I was teaching this stuff back in the 90s, but in 2000, I met a, a man who was, worked in the children's hospital. He was a physician, a Western physician, and there was a dual epidemic of, of pneumonia and smallpox and kids were dying and the conventional medicine wasn't working traditional medicine doc who used the six-stage model there at the hospital was saving these kids lives you see it's the it's the way of thinking that's important here people are grasping after single agents as magic bullets because this is how we've been we've been conditioned by the advent of antibiotics and so forth to think this way. But as antibiotics continue and become a, more of a failure, and as the drug companies in the advent of that scenario become less interested in producing antibiotics, we're going to have to be finding ways to use herbs. And the best way to use herbs to manage infections is not based on the same way of thinking. This doc saved their lives, and, and so my teacher, uh, Yang Mai Ching, is his name. He went and studied with this guy and his teacher and became a full-on expert in the model and then developed physiological, Western physiological understandings. So that's some of what I'll be uh, teaching is the uh, Western physiological components of what's taking place at each of these stages relative to the more reductive four-stage model. There's no need to do a six-stage model, for, particularly for these conditions that four stages of the surface, the organs, the blood, and the nerves works very, very well. How long do you think that we can expect to see this? It's really hard because I look at the current administration and they're throwing out July, August. I mean, just from your experience and studying, you know, infectious disease and looking at this virus, is there any way to just guess or do you feel like there's no way of knowing what this is going to look like? Um, as you well know, I, I'm an astrologer. I studied under a surgeon who practiced astrology, a, 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 a man named Case Chodak. And uh, Chodak's uh, surgical practice, he considers astrological studies to be better 
prognosticators than conventional medicine that he was involved with. He used it for electing times for surgical procedures as well as prognostication for patients. So there's been a long tradition of using these techniques. This one, first of all, this virus will go endemic. It does, it's not going to just go away. It will come and go, and it will continue to return. One of the things concernable about it is that an infection with the coronavirus does not confer immunity. So that's a bit of a problem, particularly to start thinking in terms of vaccines as mm -hmm. a tool for prevention. Look, we can look at China and say, well, their art to control of the matter is well in play. But I do believe we're going to see some um, waves coming. But the tools and understanding about how to manage epidemics, an epidemic is a social medicine problem, which requires social measures of management. And these go beyond that of the individual practitioner slash herbalist slash pharmaceuticalists. It goes beyond the scope of those individuals to um, larger systems, which are in play now. It's very clear that those countries that have used mandatory social distancing very early on have done better. The problem, of course, for the U.S. is the failure to do the testing early on. So we have yet to see the explosion for the U.S. Uh, because there are hosts of people infected who have not been tested. So we're about, we're, we're about to see an explosion in the U.S., as far as I can tell. As far as what I've heard is supposed to hunker down till July or August and see what happens. Are you thinking basically that it's just going to come in waves for a long time? Or is there anything astrologically that pops up that people can kind of think about? Or what did you, what do you well, find? I don't see astrological science clearing up for a couple of years, frankly. There is a tendency the, the virus does not do well in warm weather. That one could presume that there will be a reduction during the warm weather. Waves will come again in cold weather. There's another complicating factor here, and that's that right now in China, there is the advent of an extremely virulent bird flu. And they're already killing off large populations of birds. But um, this one has a particular clivity towards transzoonotic transmission into um, human species. So this is going to be. Uh, an added complication to the whole conversation. So do you think that the South, you know, Southern United States, for example, warmer areas are going to also fare better? Or does you think that doesn't make as much of a difference? Or is it just warm weather in general? Uh, we, it never be because uh, this is a factor we haven't seen yet. Mm. We do know the fact that the virus is more sensitive to warmth. So it would make sense, but we'll see. It's not fear-mongering. This is encouraging people to do the right thing. And what is that? Social distancing, we know works. Immune modulating herbs, we know work. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of the public that doesn't know about that. Right. Fortunately, this may be an opportunity for them to come and talk. The use of tonic herbs has to become a lifestyle thing, not something that one just does in response to um, a crisis such as this. Mm -hmm. This is a crisis. It's a crisis for civilization, and it's a crisis for the development, the next evolutionary step for 
humanity. It goes way beyond our individual fears. At some point, we all have to die. And so coming to terms with our own personal dying process is actually a very good thing. If this wakes that up, that's good. And, and so, of course, when my mother passed away and my father passed away, it, this brought me into touch with my own mortality. When my friends pass away, it does the same thing. This also will bring that. And this is an important spiritual awakening that is imminent upon humanity. And we look at back at the history from the plague of Athens and its transition, but more importantly, from the classical period, the plague that, that took down essentially Constantinople, combined, of course, with warfare technique, but it, oftentimes plagues go hand in hand with war. The plague of Athens was a war gotten plague. So was the transition from classical period into Middle Ages, and then the bubonic plague from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, also packed with wartime activities. We're talking about, uh, at the same time, an awakening. Rudolf Steiner talks about this in, in the consideration of childhood and infectious disorders. But these are actually important stage development moments for, for the individual, something takes place when one goes under with a fever. And this is not something to be feared. This is a growth moment. This is a, an awakening. Part of that awakening may be that people will begin to see that patented molecular medicine and surgical procedures as medicine is actually not the only form of medicine because there are still many people in the world that have this belief, and it's actually an illogical error to not include the entirety of potential medicinal acts, such as exercise, diet, a relationship with the plant world. These types of things are critical to, to the well-being of the individual. Back to the matter of exercise, which is something we didn't discuss. What you'll see in, I mean, if you look at the pictures coming out of China, you'll see physicians doing qigong, or physicians leading patients and doing Tai Chi and Qigong, when you're working those long shifts, if people are getting exhausted and they're stressed out and their life events are taxing them to such a degree, they've got to get a handle on it. They've got to get a handle on their core spiritual and physical well-being, as well as doing these other things that are right. And these are the kinds of things that create some possibility of survival. So the, of course, the elderly, those people with comorbidities, these are the people with the most risk. They need to be encouraged. One can easily find online free instruction in uh, Qigong and sitting Qigong, even if the person's not able to stand, they can be doing sitting Qigong. This is actually a critical degree getting a sufficient turnover of the lymph and the fluid and metabolic substrates into rejuvenation and renewal such that the immune system can be doing its proper job. So there's a whole host of factors that are going into this that go beyond the mere attempt to kill and destroy a microbe, which is essentially coming from a war mentality and begets more of the same for the human population engaged in that worldview and that approach. 
I think that's really important that the way that we term this, that we're fighting it and we're going to win it and it's a foreign invader or all of this. I mean, it, the way that it's being looked at, I think, is problematic just, you know, in essence, when people describe yeah. it. Like I was reading through an NIH uh, document about the coronavirus and they said in the middle of the document, quote from there is, in the absence of vaccine or treatment medications, non-pharmaceutical interventions become the most important response strategy. These are community interventions that can reduce the impact of the disease. So when I see that, it, it just makes me feel even more so that herbalists and health practitioners with experience and knowledge are of great need right now. In a way, it's a, a leveling of the playing field from the era of the early 1900s when there was a monopolization of the medical workforce granted to particular disciplines and the people who were engaged in herbs or even if they're women, mixed race in the schools, these were all shut down um, around circa 1913 the, what was called the Flexner Report at the time, and then through philanthropic dollars, worldview was propped up through positioning of endowed chairs within the medical divisions um, at the universities, and those universities only became qualified for their graduates to sit for exams um, or to receive these philanthropic dollars if they engaged in that conversation of the isolated uh, patented molecule as the source of uh, what is considered to be real medicine or the surgical procedure. And so those uh, those institutions had to be uh, hospital affiliated in order to fill that mandate of surgical procedures. So as a result, that whole worldview of herbal medicine, home, homeopathic medicine, all these things that have a place if one actually looks at the research and uh, explores it rather than accepting dominant discourses as the, the only reality. This is a good thing that, uh, that the NIH has taken this step. We'd like them to take a step further and be specific about what that means. But it certainly implies herbal medicine. Sure it does. Implies <laughs> medicine, uh, implies medicine, chiropractic acupuncture. Uh, I think those are probably the big ones. I don't think we should leave massage out of it. Herbs in particular for epidemics are the, the pre preferred method, and um, one can also make the argument for homeopathics as well. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the, the 1913 flu epidemic, the people who were using homeopathic agents survived at far greater rates than those who were receiving the conventional therapies of people who were being overdosed with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs which we're discovering now uh, often complicate and make worse flu virus uh, symptoms as well as coronavirus symptoms right. um, or conditions. And, and certainly in 1913 led to an extraordinary number of deaths in comparison to the homeopathic and herbal disciplines at the time. Anything that else you would think is important to kind of mention about the response to COVID-19 right now or any sort of herbal thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Um, in, enjoy your time alone. It's sacred. This time won't come again. It's actually a, a, a big respite for humanity at this time. Uh, certainly not for the medical workers who are on the ground 
in the front lines. A great deal of compassion goes to them. Help these people out because once these conditions go into the deeper, more serious stages that I described in the four-stage model, or five-stage model as I put it, actually, that, that becomes life and death. And it, it is with those people that those patients belong. We have that expertise and uh, technology and skills to manage it. The, the place for the herbal medicine is, of course, up at the at the organ and surface level. Society at large needs to recognize how it's going to fit best care, best practices, which are inclusive of all these points of view in the management of care, rather than biasing into um, what is essentially a foreign medicine that's been controlled and mandated by an industrial medical complex. And we're talking about individual practitioners on the ground using plant medicines. Those two vectors of worldview and action and the resulting economies must become resolved. Because some of us always wonder, something might happen, when is it going to happen? And, you know, is this going to go away? And is this just going to kind of melt away? But this is the first time in my life that I can think of that I'm coming to terms with starting to think about how I might live my life differently from here on out as a person until this passes. And it could be anywhere from a few years that it gets better to a decade, but it doesn't mean that we're going to go back to life as we knew it. So I think that's part of what I saw and I don't know what you think about this, but what I saw was this response to this by everyone around me was panicking and running around and pulling everything off the shelves they could think of panic. And it, so wherever there's an excess, there's going to be a deficiency. It was in Austin when the news came down that this was a pandemic and the way you could feel it in the air around you and people's nervous systems were on edge and everyone was just over-expressing everything. And you could tell that there was a lot of fear that people were feeding. I really appreciate your views on this because it helps me to further think about how I'm going to be changing my life in response to this. Yeah, it's, I suppose that fear is a natural go-to for folks. This is not the first pandemic that the world has experienced, nor will it be the last. Mm -hmm. And humanity's still here. Right. We have far greater things to be concerned with. The condition of the world as an environment in which humans exist. Yeah. We're facing the extinction. This is a far greater, should be a far greater concern. Pressure from the people on our leaders to, to rectify this. Abandon this fear of carbon taxes. Taxation is not the way to manage it, but we do have to come to terms with what we're doing to this uh, planet we call home. And this is this one's a normal process. Yeah, I mean, I like to look at it, uh, the Earth, in terms of stages as well. And I feel like the Earth is at a, a, a tipping point. So there's a tipping point for the COVID, for any infection, in fact. There's a tipping point where the body becomes very unstable in terms of its temperature dysregulation or regulation, however you frame it. The, the Earth is at this moment in an unstable temperature regulation state. And we should not be losing sight. None of this is cause for fear. It's all cause for how to identify appropriate action.
what's what's the right place to be mm-hmm. what who am i as a human being on this planet and what is my role in that conversation these are all the questions people should be wrestling with not um oh dear there's not enough toilet paper right you don't need toilet paper. You know, we didn't need toilet paper before there was toilet paper, and we certainly don't need it now. I asked somebody, why isn't there a run on bidets? And she sent me an article showing me that there was. Yeah, <laughs> right. There's a run on everything. Uh, so another thing that humans in the U.S. have been pushing little buttons to get whatever they want when they want it, And so there's a panic also when you can't get what you want now when you want it. Being created, though, it wasn't there, but the fear was fed and then the panic ensued. And now we have a situation where there's this self-created limitations now on what we have. Absolutely. Yeah, it kind of goes to what might be considered to be um, winning formulas. Whereas when, when I, as an individual, don't get my expectations met, I have a few choices. I can flip into work harder mode. I can flip into an emotional breakdown mode. These are all used as ways of manipulating the environment to ensure that I can get my expectations met. The fact is, is we're going to go through life and we're not going to have expectations met a good portion of the time. At some point, we have to give up those uh, winning strategies, getting angry, getting sad, using whatever state we have to manipulate those in the environment around us into complying with fulfilling our expectations. This is a pathological state. We need to fulfill our own expectations just by being willing to have them And on that note, Dr. Morris, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us today and being with me online in this new world. And I hope to have you again as a guest. Thanks for having me, Nicole. I've had a wonderful time chatting with you, as always. And and I look forward to uh, our reconvening in the future. Thanks so much for joining me at the Wild Spirit Podcast. You can support the work I'm doing at the Wild Spirit Patreon page, and I look forward to having you join me here again soon. Be well.